0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in 5 podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Excuse me while I set the mood a bit. My God, I love this song. And me, and you, and from head to toe, is there anything better than seeing a show or movie or when a pop culture event happens and all you want to do is talk to somebody about it? That's how I feel right now about the Barbie movie, which I went into with like no expectations, especially because the plot was kind of kept under wraps by the promotional efforts. It all was very surface level. And I just did not know what to expect going into it. And I saw it a little earlier than when it came out in theaters. And I currently just have so many things to say that I figured I'd hop on the mic and put this out later this weekend by the time a lot of you see it, if you're looking for a place to talk about this movie because, my God, did I enjoy it. I, I, I'm going to guess a lot of you did too, although I guess I don't know. It's hard when the reviews aren't out yet. But, well, okay, I've seen a lot of formal reviews, but I feel like some of them are kind of missing the point. But I just think the best will, like, really, really get this one. One of my absolute favorite things to do on this show is to explore the com- the complexities of nostalgia. And like I often say, to to both celebrate and criticize millennial experiences or brands for the ways these things shaped us for better or for worse. And today's topic, none other than Barbara Millicent Roberts, aka Barbie. Like other topics we've discussed on this show, like American Girl dolls or I don't know the lore of shopping at an early aughts Abercrombie and Fitch, Barbie similarly operates on this fascinating spectrum where depending on your angle, depending on your vantage point, it's like not that serious or it's seriously impactful to young people. And there's an interesting duality in like the frivolous nature of a toy, just something you play with for a short period of time. It's disposable. It's the landfill's finest, not that big of a deal. But when you're the age, when you're playing, when you're pretending, you are absorbing so much about the world and projecting it onto the scenarios you're playing out with those toys and what they represent does matter. And it does inform your r- worldview. And you may not be aware that you're absorbing these themes while it's happening, but in hindsight, I certainly do. I weirdly, I've never, I've not talked about Barbie Harley at all on this podcast, but chapter one of my book opens with a Barbie anecdote and my book actually kind of closes with a Barbie anecdote. Um... <laughs> Don't, don't you love how my book just gets you know brought up at every turn? But um, I've been narrating my audiobook this week, and I kind of couldn't believe like the convergence of themes, and it got me really excited, because part of what I love to do and what I think is important to do, and I don't think that people allow art to do, is to meander, to examine windy, complex subjects for the sake of exploration without resolve. And I've already seen this movie be criticized for circling themes without resolving it or having one distinct point of view but I'm like oh my god that's the point the entire the entire point is lost amongst the critics barbie nor we are meant to be reduced to good or bad to role model or negative influence or you know it shouldn't surprise me that the ultimate representation of a woman in a box people want to be further placed in that box but barbie has this extreme level of recognition. I mean, brand awareness, most enterprises could only dream of like Coca-Cola. I think the Hulu documentary about Barbie said there's like a 98% uh, brand recognition rate globally. And because of that recognizability, Barbie is kind of this evergreen projection of what society demands of women and, and has been ever since Her entry into the marketplace in, what, 1959? And it's just interesting. I was reading, like anything, there's a fair mixture of, you know, positive and negative feedback. But I do think that this is particularly funny and like life imitating art when people are like, well, is Barbie feminist? Is it for everyone? Is it too liberal? Is it too woke? Is she problematic? Is she promoting impossible body body standards? Is she inspiring? Is she showing young girls the opportunities they have in front of them? Or eclipsing them to a limited set of options based on her superficial nature. And it's just like all this shit people like want to not only place her in a box, but also argue that she either has to represent one narrow point of view, hyper specifically and not stray from it or represent everyone ever. And it's like you're missing the point if you don't see this entire movie is a giant both. And it's all of the above. It's not meant to tie this up with a bow. I think it's just meant to explore the contours of a complicated piece of pop culture iconography, uh, all while doing something capitalistic in nature, right? Like, I think that's what's interesting. The the movie did such a good job existentially exploring so many topics and poking fun at its uh, at itself as a brand and poking fun at Mattel, which I was quite surprised by. Meanwhile, Mattel is capitalizing off this venture so unbelievably well that I assume them poking fun at their own brand was like. Ultimately, the least of their worries when they realize what a money making venture this is based on the content and brand partnerships. I mean, this movie is targeted toward like millennial women and older, it feels like. I mean, I don't know a seventh grader that's in for a Barbie X ruggable collab. At first, I was like, I can't believe Mattel let themselves be represented as like a boardroom of men in the goofball, like Will Ferrell and all that. But what do you really think about? It, they're not doing something like altruistic or self-aware like I just think that that is pales in comparison to how much money they are raking in. Not from kids, their usual Target demo, but from probably millennial women and older who are experiencing a renaissance with the brand, who are resolving their feelings, their complicated feelings with the doll. There were so many brand clubs. Some of them were really fun. And I don't know, I'm into it. But also, I think part of what made me not understand what this movie was about or made me perhaps over-anticipate a level of v- vapidity. Is that a word? Uh, because, like, the promotional efforts, they were, they were it was almost oversaturation. It was being super soaked with pink um, in ways that, like, until I watched the movie, I wasn't even digging deeper and connecting with why I cared about Barbie. And the movie made me appreciate the heavy promotion after the fact When I found it distracting beforehand, and it made me like a little less interested in it because it seemed like just a money making venture. And now I see how it is both. And now I see how the way it was written Mattel approved because they were going to be able to make so much money off of it. Anyway, I just have to start by saying, obviously, this is a brilliant, brilliant movie that I think is really important. And most of this will just be me existentially spiraling about the themes. But we do have to admit that it is first and foremost a major money making one. And that's okay. It can be both. It really made me think, really made me proud to be a woman, really made me think about how I want to parent. It made me think about all of the times my interests were diminished, how girls have to leave their childhoods behind, and what these dolls represent in terms of the world we once thought we'd enter. And then you think of how men kind of carry on with their life and keep their toys and keep their video games and keep their sports and activities in ways that I shoved down because I wanted to be taken seriously. And I think this movie bubbled up a lot of my hopes and dreams of thinking life would be like Barbie Land, but it ultimately was more like the real world they showed. I think it did a really interesting job of flipping the idea of patriarchy on its head to the point where some of the criticism, I'm like, yep, it's on the nose that you would think this is anti-man. But what you're seeing is what the world looks like as a woman when it's run by men. So when you flip the script and it's a world (laughs) run by women and you think it's anti-man, yeah, precisely. The fact that the mere idea is so offensive to you and that you're taking it as anti-man just goes to show how steeped in the system we are where your idea of normal is it being male-dominated. And if you find anything to the contrary to be an attack or personally offensive or so outrageous that you feel the need to comment on it, yeah, imagine what it's like being us. Your perception of a fictitious plotline is our everyday reality. Ultimately, what happens, the, the compromises that Ken's are given as much power in the Barbie land as women have in real life. So they offer them what? Cabinet positions, not the presidency. A few judgeships, not even half of them. It's almost like if you think that's anti-man, then you're co-signing that like the world is anti-female. I mean, whatever. I don't even want to like waste time on who this movie is lost on. I'm seeing my For You page went from celebrating Barbie to like Fox News and Piers Morgan talking about what a travesty it is and how woke it is and how it's going to poison your daughters. And I'm like, can somebody curate an account of stuff that people like Piers Morgan hates? Because that means I will love it. Um, It's just a glowing endorsement for this film. It shocks me that there are people out there that don't have the capacity for empathy or women who like really don't understand what the point was. Like if you hear America Ferreira's monologue about the impossibility of being a woman and the expectations placed upon you and you hear the wavering power and and self-defeat in her voice and the ultimate resignation toward the end that just goes to show that even when you're in a moment of clarity making a point that is so powerful, you're reflexes to override, to retreat to a place of doubt. It was so brilliant. And to for somebody to see that and to think, ugh, gross, woke liberal agenda, a woman seeking a sense of personal autonomy and and self-esteem and making an argument that maybe we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves and others for no godforsaken reason. This is why pop culture could be so important. You can say TV and music and movies rot your brain all you want, but if there are... I'm grateful something like this exists for young people who maybe eventually will watch it. I don't think this movie was ever meant for kids at all, by the way. And you can choose not to take them to it or to explain the broader themes because they will completely go over their head and they'll probably just enjoy the sights and the Barbie fanfare. But also, in the event a person comes into contact with a movie like this and it makes them think, and they, and they have parents that genuinely think it will poison their brain. To reject double standards and submissive gender roles. I mean, come on. I feel like I sorted out my rage with this when we did the episode on turning red. So I'm not going to (laughs) hyper fixate on that here. Anyway, okay. So for this episode. This is more of like talking about the movie than like doing a brand deep dive, just a heads up. So like there will be spoilers, which I know is not ideal because many of you have probably not Mm -hmm. seen it yet. But when you do... Come on back. We'd love to have you. Now, there are countless thought-provoking, important themes in this movie that I want to touch on. But the first, beyond the many women's issues that I could be focusing on, the first thing I have to say is, my God, you guys, have we just really overlooked the the lyrics to Matchbox 20's push all this time? (laughs) I mean, not only was, I was like cry laughing at the use of Maxbox Twenty. It's just one of those it's to me, they're like the two and a half men of bands, Uh, the big bang theory of bands, like very commercially popular. I always use those references because I'm fascinated by things that like do so commercially well, yet I don't know anybody who's like a super fan of it. And it's just one of those things where the quality isn't there for me. All their music kind of sounds the same. And I'm sorry to any big what are Matchbox 20 fans called? Matchboxes made in heaven. I don't know. It's just something I've never really liked at all. And people confuse them with stuff like the Goo And I'm like, oh my God, no, the Goodles, like they're, they're perfection, they're art. Matchbox 20 just is, does not hold a candle, nay, match to some of the other mumbly uh, pop rock groups of the late 90s, as we discussed in One Hit Mumbler. Um, but it being like the official anthem of the Kens is just so fucking funny. And the chorus to push... I want to push you around. Well, I will. Well, I will. I want to push you down. Well, I will. Well, I will. I want to take you for granted. It's like, geez. (laughs) I just, I I don't know why I loved the Ken singing guitar at them and all singing push so much. It was like the the absolute right choice. But yeah, I've really genuinely liked, I've really genuinely enjoyed this movie. I laughed. I cried. It, It made me think it was visually stunning. I, I don't I just don't see that many movies anymore that I walk out of, you know, wanting to see again, feeling better off for spending the time watching it. I really thought this movie went out of its way to dig deeper when no one was really asking more of it than to skim the surface, because, again, the tickets would have sold themselves anyway. It felt like incredibly campy and out there in some parts and like a little zany, but it, it was substantive. It was smart. It was. Yeah, life in plastic. It's it's fantastic. And and depending on how you look at it, I think it's a bit also scholastic because it tackled issues that women face as told through, like I said earlier, Barbie kind of being a projection of what society demands of women. And I think that Barbie is kind of a brilliant case study because she's so easily oversimplified and reduced based on her appearance, right? She's seen as the most almost uncomplicated representation of the female form. Yet her cultural significance across generations could not be more complex. And I thought this exploration was really, really well done. As a self-identified Barbie girl and a little woman, I'm obviously a fan of Greta Gerwig's work. And I was reading about the early phases of this project. What I didn't realize, so you know how we heard like different, I, I heard different rumblings about it over the years. Like at one point Amy Schumer was maybe involved. Um, I didn't understand, I thought Margot Robbie just acted in it, but she, her production company, I think it's called Lucky Chap, produced it and got the rights from Mattel a long time ago. And Greta Gerwig and her partner Noah didn't sign on until I think like maybe 2019. So in the movie, Helen Mirren is narrating it and we learn that Ken is essentially like an accessory sold separately, right? Like I think she says Barbie has a great day every day. Ken only has a great day if Barbie looks at him because Ken came after Barbie. Mattel introduced the first Ken doll in 1961, but only in response to letters demanding Barbie get a boyfriend. People didn't like she was single. And Greta Gerwig, in some interview I read a while back pointed out that Barbie was invented first and Ken was invented after Barbie to burnish Barbie's position in our eyes and in the world. That kind of creation myth is the opposite of the creation myth in Genesis. And I was like, I love that. Like that. Greta Gerwig's work often has like religious undertones and she went to Catholic school. And I think that influences a lot of her art and her sound bites about, I don't know, I just like love this angle of it, of Barbie coming first. I do think it's an important distinction that uh, Barbie, before a woman could open a credit card in the United States, I think is the anecdote. The Barbie dolls were like NASA scientists going to the moon. Like at at the time, she represented something limitless in that, like, it was legitimately impossible. So she was ahead of her time in a sense. Were those the Barbies I owned? God, no. What I wanted for my future was an ample mane full of glitter hair gel. I was of the glitter hair Barbie persuasion, you know, with the palm tree shirt and the mini skirt, or totally hair Barbie with the multicolored mini dress and the Rapunzel-like crimped locks. I spent my girlhood less interested in finding meaning in this life and more so just glamorized lifeguard culture. I was more deep than than the Ken's we saw on screen. But if we're talking about the brand higher level, like that really is important, what they were trying to do for our perceptions of careers. I you know, in the movie, they make this grand pitch for like ordinary Barbie, which fine. But what we need to do is give Barbie ordinary careers and we need we need an account executive Barbie. Client Solutions Coordinator Barbie. Barbie, I think, should go to the moon and should snorkel the seas, but she should also be boiling the ocean from a ten thousand foot view to loop back to a paradigm shift so we can synergize best practices. I, I just have always wanted a more corporate Barbie, and that's just, you know, an aside for my hopes and dreams. We need a Barbie that just like is a part time hostess at a Texas Roadhouse, who's a victim of the millennial subsidy and therefore just lives off of odd jobs from the gig economy, a bubble that we're just waiting to burst. So when she's not at the Roadhouse, or in my case, the CPK, she's monetizing her hobbies on Etsy. Maybe she had a fleeting moment of virality and is leveraging it to sell an absurd amount of merch, like Lala Kent buying her Palm Springs home just off of Send It to Daryl sweatshirts. (laughs) I don't know. I'd like to see gig economy Barbie. Maybe she'll pick you up in her Nissan Altima. As a lift driver, and then she'll mount your TV as a task rabbit. We really can do it all. But anyway, so she was ahead of her time, in a sense, but also had this like incredibly problematic, disproportionate body type that like a human woman couldn't even even if you tried to attain it, you'd tip over because her proportions were so imbalanced. So she was this, you, know, oppressive, impossible beauty standard paired with this career woman who came before Ken. Who had career opportunities women didn't have in the real world, who would allow little girls to dream And the movie opens parodying <laughs> I don't I have any trouble with words. Again, I've been recording my audiobook like seven hours a day. I don't have a voice. I'm sorry if I'm low energy. that talk I talk a lot for my job, but wow, that was a different experience. That was, that was quite challenging. Um, but the movie opens, and this was one of the teasers. I guess it's kind of more of an homage to 2001: A Space Odyssey. Like the dawn of man. And instead of like, you know, the prehistoric apes, it's these little girls who are playing with baby dolls. Margot Robbie appears like giant, towering over all the girls in all of her glory in that like original black and white Barbie bathing suit with the curled bangs. I think it's a really creative play on like an evolutionary concept. Because the other thing it's pointing out here is that young girls, I guess at the time, like were mostly playing with baby dolls. And I actually wrote about this in my book, but in the context of praising American girl dolls for the dynamic personalities, backstories, trials and humanity that they injected into a toy because a baby doll is kind of one dimensional in that from a young age, it's instilling in young girls that what they are to aspire to, even their pretend play, should be a function of cosplaying who they are to somebody else. Baby dolls don't have much to do with your identity or vicariously experiencing the world through somebody else's identity. It has to do with you as a caretaker, who you are as a mother. It's it's pandering to that frustrating thing I call the love marriage baby carriage pipeline, where for a young age, our identities, our first and foremost position as what we aspire to later in life is who we become to other people, aka wife and mom. And baby dolls represent this kind of oppressive thing where To be already pretending to take care of a baby at a young age represents the limitations placed on women at that time where that's what we were to dream of. And I like this opening scene as a play on that because it's like, here's this older woman with a life, with a job, with a career, with independence, with her own house. Barbie has a fucking mortgage and women can't even take out a credit card at this time. So she represents this evolution and the girls are like throwing and smashing their dolls because... Finally, they can look to something else than the predefined boxes they're put in by opening the box Barbie's in. And I, I really, really loved the opening. And what I love about Greta Gerwig's work, I think, I did I mention this earlier? She went to Catholic school, and the way she talks about Barbie is very, like, spiritual and evolutionary. And even, like, the scene with Margot, like, is zooming in on, Mar- on Barbie touching Ruth Handler, the creator's hand. It's supposed to be, like, the Sistine Chapel touch between a woman and her creator. I don't know. I just, like, love these underlying themes. I could hear her talk about this endlessly. And what I thought was so funny is that Margot Robbie, I guess, had... So Greta and her partner Noah wrote the script in 2019, but would not let anybody else read it until it was done. And all Margot had to go off of, apparently, was this abstract poem Greta wrote about Barbie. A lot of my chapters start as abstract poems, and I understand that like line of thinking. And I want to read this poem so badly because... Greta won't share it with the public, but she said it most closely (laughs) resembles the Apostles' Creed. And I don't know why, but to me, that is like very funny. And that is how deep and intensely and spiritually I took this movie. And um, before we think our advertisers, I feel like we should bow our heads because while I was swimming laps this week, because, you know, it's fun to be a woman and I was told I've gained enough weight to have twins during this pregnancy where I am only having one child. Not that I'm mad about it. I can barely move, but Fortunately, I can swim laps, and that's where I have all my deepest thoughts. And to me, I was thinking it would go a little something like this. I believe in Barbie, the Mother Almighty, friend of Midge before she gave birth. I believe in Jeep, so bright and fun outdoors, hair crimped with a dream house near it, and born into the Roberts family. Whether she drove a Pontiac or was a pilot, she was crucified for being unmarried and descended to Mattel and deceded by the white man of Ken, the bothers of society. From there they will begrudge her for living her best life unwed. I believe in Barbie's girlish spirit, the bubblegum pinkest merch, not the disproportions of her shape, or the relevance of Ken, or society's projections onto her body, but in lifeguards everlasting. Amen. Now that I think about it, I wonder if my obsession with Malibu Barbie translated to my equal obsession with Osea Malibu, because now that summer's well underway, it's the perfect time to take your body care routine to the next level. And Osea is offering a rare opportunity to try their bestsellers body care set if you're interested in that summer glow. The set includes the product I rave about all the time and their TikTok famous Undaria Algae Body Oil. And another product that I just ran out of and had to reorder myself, their Undaria Algae Body Butter, plus their ultra rich anti aging body balm and salt of the earth body scrub. And with convenient TSA-friendly sizes packed in a beautiful, reusable vegan leather bag, you can enjoy silky-soft, radiant skin wherever your summer travels take you. Mine will be taking me downtown to the hospital to have a baby, probably. But when I got my bestseller's body care set, I was stoked because I put it in my hospital bag. I can't live without the lotion and the oil um, on my bump and elsewhere. But for those of you living a more glamorous lifestyle... Osea's Ondaria uh, Algae Body Oil is like the kind of cult-followed product for a reason, and it locks in moisture literally all day, and you can like sit on your bed and put on clothes, and it does not get greasy. I can't emphasize that enough. So many body oils do, and Osea is just top of the line. Anyway, Osea's bestseller's body care set is your new glow-to for summer. The set is a value of $78, but right now you can get it for only 52 at oseamalibu.com. That's an incredible 33% savings. And as a special treat for our listeners, you'll get an additional 10% off when you use our code. This summer, get glowing, healthy skin with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. And don't miss this rare opportunity to try Osea's bestsellers Body Care Set for 33% off and 10% off your first order site-wide with code BETHEREN5 at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use code BETHEREN5 for 10% off. You know, people joke that day-to-night fashion's not a thing. There was a day-to-night Barbie, by the way. Uh, But it kind of is, especially with companies like Pear Eyewear that allow you to change up your look with one item. You can take your glasses look from sunny days to warm nights. No more digging in your bag to switch out sunglasses for regular frames, to change the pair you want to wear to work to the pair you want to go out with. You can change your summer look in a snap with their affordable sun top collection, base frames, and hundreds of other magnetic top frames. This company was on Shark Tank. I think it's really cool. You get a base frame that's super affordable, starting at just $60. And then you can match your outfit, support your home team. Kids can rep their favorite superhero or Disney princess, whatever you want. The whole family can customize their unique look with magnetic top frame styles that you can use on the same pair of glasses. So the the way I use this most often is having the base prescription eyeglass. And then there's a magnetic like, snap-on sunglass topper. It's not bulky at all. It looks like I'm just wearing regular sunglasses. So I only have to travel with one pair of glasses, and they serve as prescription sunglasses or just regular prescription glasses. It's it's the power of one pair. And they have a variety of lens options. They have light-responsive lenses, progressive lenses, blue light filtering, sunglasses. Pair is amazingly budget-friendly without compromising on style and I just think they're great options for the whole family. So express yourself wherever summer takes you with pair eyewear. Go to slash be there in five for 15% off your first pair. That's pair, P A I R, slash be there in five. I mean, where do we even begin? I'll do my best to summarize a bit. Basically, we, we begin in Barbie land after the space odyssey scene. And it's like this glorious, candy coated matriarchy with open-faced mansions and cartoonishly beautiful and obviously artificial scenery, with these, like, impossibly beautiful Barbies and handsome Kens all greeting each other with a smile and a wave and a hi, Barbie, to the tune of Lizzo's Pink, which I love. And reading about the set is really interesting, that there is no CGI in Barbie land, and the production designer and set decorator, both women, Sarah Greenwood and Kate, Katie Spencer, um, they had like, a lot of rules for the set. There was no black, white, or chrome. There's no fire or water. You notice Barbie, like showers under a faucet and nothing comes out. She takes a water slide into a pool that is just like cardboard. There are solid waves in the ocean that like Dua Lipa waves out of it at one point. I thought Dua Lipa was Mermaid Barbie, but I guess she was technically Dreamtopia Barbie. Her wardrobe has like plastic on it. Kind of like it was still in the box. And Barbie is supposed to match the proportions of playing with the toy. So she's just like a little too big for her dream house and for her furniture and for her car. And I love how like they made it seem realistic to how you play with the Barbie. Like no one's going to walk their Barbie down the stairs in the dream house. They're going to float down to their car or take the water slide or whatever. The set designers, I think, did a YouTube show. It's called HGTV On Set with Barbie. And they talk about how they could have just green screened it, but they built out that entire set. Like, it was all real. It was built on a sound st- soundstage in London where they built the Harry Potter films. And they wanted the set to have the feeling of when a child opens a toy box and they're not disappointed. I mean, you guys remember how magical a dream house felt? Are you kidding? Like... The Barbie Jeep, the Barbie camper—literally, this is why millennials all want to live in vans down by the river and start TikTok accounts—is because of that Barbie camper. I was obsessed with the pools. There were different pools. There was like a spray and play pool that was awesome. There was like a tropical splash pool. I was obsessed with the fountain pool because it lit up. It was gorgeous. And my God, the um, the the boat it came with a blender. I mean, I also there were so many cars. There were convertibles and jeeps and things that looked like geo trackers, which I think informed my current, still life, uh, lifelong obsession with them. I, I, I just love like an open top sporty vehicle with a roll with a roll bar that a hyper feminine character is driving and most certainly not off roading. and just that juxtaposition just really works for me. The accessories, kind of like American Girl doll, like fine furnishings are very memorable to me because the dolls had accessible price points to an extent, uh, but it was the dream houses, the cars, the boats, the planes, the campers that kind of were next level. Like having uh, Felicity's canopy bed or like Samantha's steamer trunk with her winter story muff she inappropriately wore to or see her friend at an orphanage. Like Let's maybe save the fine furs and wool cape for your more fortunate friends. Jeez, but whatever. Um, It kind of like, that was the socioeconomic stratification of playing with Barbies is when you noticed people had like some of the higher end accessories. And the ones that had a gimmick, like a light, like a blender, (laughs) even though it's so silly, I don't know, made all the difference. And um, the dream house in the set did not disappoint. The f- movie also had so many great nods to the vehicles, in addition to the Barbies. Like, there was the snowmobile that I guess is from the Barbie and Sisters Winter Snow Fun set. Barbie's, speeds- Barbie's speedboat. Barbie's dream camper vehicle. Barbie's space discovery with rocket ship. Barbie's dream plane, among others. And I- they, like, built those uh, for her, like, travels to and from Barbie land, which I thought were a really great tribute there was also you could see like the barbie care clinic and beyond that there were i mean the styling the outfits were so good too like i'm I'm jumping all over the place but margot robbie is like stereotypical barbie so her debut is in the 1959 um swimsuit that barbie wore but she kind of wears a lot of the classic outfits over time But then we're introduced to several different Barbies, like spanning generations from 1959 to present, because like the um, diplomat Barbie is from 2021, but also they had Dr. Barbie from the 70s. Kate McKinnon, who plays Weird Barbie, which is just kind of a it's not an official Barbie, but it's this thing in like collective consciousness where we all know exactly what it is. It's the Barbie who gets (laughs) in the movie they say played with a little too hard. And, you know, her hair is cut and spiky. You draw on her face. She's usually in mismatched clothes and, like, in a weird split position in the basement wearing mismatched shoes. I think Kate McKinnon's character says, like, she smells like basement. It just was so good. And then in Kate McKinnon's weird Barbie house, or where all the discontinued Barbies live, like, video Barbie that was this thing. Like, the I think the FBI got involved with because it was so creepy. It was a Barbie that had a camera on the front of her that rec- could record up to 30 seconds of video. And then it would play on the Barbie's back, which is just like creepy to be recording children, among other things. Um, There was was his name, Earring Magic Ken. Mattel did focus groups in the 90s trying and I guess they found out the little boys didn't think Ken was cool. So they tried to make him cool with the times, kind of like George Michael Madonna-esque vibes. But he ended up turning into this like gay icon and I guess was pulled from shelves. There's Sugar Daddy Barbie, which I can't believe ever existed. That dog named Tanner that left droplings, which is so gross but funny. And I totally remember him. We see a cameo from Team Teen, Teen Talk Barbie, who's one of my favorites, but she doesn't have any lines. But I guess like the main characters are Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie, the president played by Issa Ray, Kate McKinnon, who plays Weird Barbie, and then America Ferreira, who's actually a human, not a Barbie. And then of course Ryan Gosling's Ken and Michael Sarah as Alan. So Alan is a doll I was not that aware of, because like most Barbies in Barbie land, I ignored and wasn't interested in Ken. Nor do I even remember? I don't really remember owning or asking for a Ken. Maybe we had one. Um, No, we did, because I definitely made my Barbies do it, so there had to be a male character somewhere. But um, Alan turns out to be like the ultimate ally, and he's just such a goof of a character and such good comedic relief. And... Alan was released in 1964 as Ken's best friend. His selling point was that Ken's clothes could fit him. And he was dating Midge, Barbie's best friend. I'll get to her in a second. So they could go on and double date with Barbie and Ken. But Alan was discontinued in 1966 for not being as popular as Ken. He was then resurrected in Al- as Alan again in the 90s. They just dropped one L-A-L-A-N, who was Midge's new husband and the father of Midge's kids in the 2000s Happy Family Collection. But that got shelved because it came with this highly controversial Midge doll who had a removable belly and newborn from her belly and was like this pregnant Barbie. And in the movie, like, justice for Midge, um, it's a running gag that Midge, the pregnant Barbie, is off-putting. Like, even the Metalli's like, oh, Midge none of the all the Barbies are so nice and oblivious and kind to everyone and live in this like pure world where they they're defenseless because there is no negativity, yet they're still like kinda mean to Midge because she's like pregnant and bumming everybody out. And the Lizzo song Pink at the end, she's like, Hey Midge, never mind. I mean meanwhile, I'm sitting in a theater. I, I'm I, I'm at a screener and everybody is dressed to the fucking nines, like pink and glitter and perfection. It is just like an amazing girlish pink world of glamour and everyone is so stunning in their costumes. And I just want to announce to the room that like my swollen ankles, like apologize for bringing the vibe down. I like I understand as a heavily pregnant woman that I make people uncomfortable because my very existence looks so goddamn uncomfortable. And you know what? It is. It's not easy to be Midge. I thought I never thought I'd see this movie as a Midge. I thought I'd be one of the Barbies. And and it's giving me my own crisis that I can't even get into. But yeah, justice for Midge, you guys. So there's Midge and there's Alan. And I think they re- referenced growing up Skipper. I didn't know about growing up Skipper, but in 19... So Skipper and Stacy are Barbie's younger sisters, right? Skipper was introduced in 1964. And um, in 1975, they they released growing up Skipper to help kids understand puberty. And she had a left arm that you could rotate and she would grow from a kid to a teenager in real time. And she, like, grew boobs and I think maybe got a little taller. And her skirt went from short to long. So, like, as as her arm rotated, Skipper grew an inch in height. And her chest. <laughs> so weird. I would love to get my hands on one of those. Anyway, there are so many good references that I know Barbie fans would love. But I especially love and, loved and appreciated the, the setting and that they didn't CGI and that they went out of their way you know, when they went from world to world to use the accurate accessories. It was just like a fun visual walk down memory lane that I would have appreciated even without the deeper message. Now to get into the plot. The the plot was kind of wacky between like, you know, trains, planes, automobiles from Barbie land to the real world, the way things exist in Barbie land. The, you know, red pill, blue pill moment to enter the real world. The fact that people um, who play with the Barbies can like project Feelings and emotions onto them. I mean, the, the, the whole like energy of it all, it so much of it was like absurd and campy and zany. But I think that makes a ton of sense because think about playing with Barbies. It's the plot lines you write for them, the ways you have them interact, the scenarios you put them in are probably ridiculous, but it works because it is what you make it. You can do whatever you want with Barbies. That's why they're amazing. The dolls are an invention, they're not real. And this, plot could have taken any direction and what I liked about the movie you sensed from it that like they actually had quite a bit of creative freedom in writing this and were able to make it as fantastical and wacky as it was deep and tell jokes at Mattel's expense and I just I think I thought it would go after certain themes with a lot more hesitation than it did and I just yeah it was so good well it's just like can we walk through some of it just to recap just to appreciate the things we all saw and then I'll get into my highly subjective um personal existential thoughts as a result of this, which I hope the ones everyone has are slightly different. I think that's the whole point. That's what great art does is it makes you interpret things vastly differently. Um, But as I said, we start with Barbie and the beautiful scenery and we're introduced to different Barbies. And you're very aware of like the artifice of this world, but also that it's like this unbothered matriarchy. We see a Barbie journalist winning a uh, Pulitzer the Supreme Court's all Barbies. We meet the Kens. And like I said earlier, they describe Ken as like, Barbie has a great day every day. Ken only has a great day if, if Barbie looks at him. And every night is girls' night. You can tell it's like, she's just not really interested in Ken. Like, he's just kind of an accessory. Um, He only exists for her, but she he's just kind of around. And they make very, like, cheeky jokes, like he wants to sleep over and they're not really sure why cuz like again they don't even have private parts they're like completely sexless yet are supposed to be in a relationship there's a funny scene where ken just explains his job isn't lifeguard it's just beach and like then they have a the bit about like a beach off i mean it's like a whole thing in addition to you know the all girl sleepovers every night is girls night at night they have these you know disco dance parties and in the middle of one of the Disco dance parties. I think it's do a Leap Song Dance the Night Away. Barbie says, You guys ever think about dying? And it's like, you know, stop the track. The next morning, Barbie's shower it isn't working. Her milk has expired. There's some weird stuff in her world. And then, you know, as we know, her impeccable high arches fall flat and she has flat feet. And that's kind of a gag. And uh, they <laughs> make it so her smooth plastic lacquered legs. Are struck with, you know, God forbid, cellulite. And she's like, what is happening? And they the her Barbie friends tell her to go see Weird Barbie, Kate McKinnon Kate McKinnon's character. And then they proceed to have like a matrix type parallel happening where whoever's playing with her is projecting her emotions onto her and she has to go see the girl in the real world who's playing with her. And the matrix piece is like holding up two shoes. red pill, blue pill vibes. Kate McKinnon holds up like a stiletto heel and she can continue her life in Barbie land and ignore it. Or she can take the Birkenstock and see the truth um, about the universe. And she's like, the choice is yours. And of course she like picks the stiletto. But the whole point is she's supposed to find the truth and enter into this journey of self-discovery. And that's when we get all the great scenes with the original Barbie-like transportation vehicles. And the outfits that match them. And this is where the infamous rollerblade scene comes into play. And we start to kind of see what they were trying to do with Barbie land versus the real world, the matriarchy, patriarchy. And the roller skating scene is particularly interesting. So Barbie starts to notice while she's rollerblading on the boardwalk, she's getting objectified, to saying, you know, give us a smile, Barbie. She's kind of being like ogled and objectified while Ken's being high fived. And, and Barbie's kind of like, why are these men looking at me? And Ken's like, they're also looking at me, and they have two completely different reactions to being stared at. And then Parker Robbie says, "Like I, I, they're basically introducing this concept of self consciousness. I don't know what to call it. I'm conscious, but like of myself. And then you, when you think about it, you're like, oh, I mean, tying back to the religious spiritual parallels. Um, in one interview with Greta Gerwig, she." said in the movie when it starts she's in a world where there's no aging or death or pain or shame or self-consciousness and suddenly she becomes self-conscious that's a really old story and we know that story kind of like garden of eden vibes and i think that's like a really interesting thing parallel she was trying to draw it almost like paints so simplistically the female experience of constant surveillance through the eyes of a person who is so confused by it they're not making a commentary on it so much as they're observing it for what it is and what it is is disturbing relative to the male experience. So Barbie's uncomfortable, Ken feels admired he says, he goes out of his way to say there's no undertone of violence and Margot was like, or Barbie's like, mine very much feels violent. There's so many good things where she's expecting it to be female run she's like, oh a construction site we need that good feminine energy <laughs> and, and there's like a billboard of like pageant women in bikinis. And she's like, oh, that must be the Supreme Court. I mean, there's so many, like, good one-liner zinger type things I'm probably not remembering. So, yeah, Barbie's in our world. And she's facing, you know, gender inequity, sexual harassment. And she goes to find the girl who was playing with her, only to find out it was actually the mother um, who plays America Ferreira. That introduced these like you know thoughts of dying into her mind, and uh, you know met with pushback from this group of Gen Z girls at school that some people say are supposed to resemble like the Bratz dolls because of the Mattel Bratz doll like litigation situation back in the day. I don't really know if that's true, but they're basically saying like she's problematic, she upholds impossible standards for women, and Barbie's not ready to. She's just confused by that because she thought. As far as everyone knew in Barbie land, they like fixed everything when Barbie was introduced and she was ambitious and she could have all these careers women couldn't women couldn't have. And they're just out of touch with the real world and understanding the negative implications that they represent as well. And um, it's just kind of like this horrible experience for Barbie, who is very much crying and emotional and experiencing all these things she hasn't before. And there's this beautiful scene at a bus stop where she looks over and sees an elderly woman. And tells her she's beautiful. And that scene, like, for reasons you kind of can't describe while watching it, feels really touching. Come to find out that woman is Barbara Handler, a.k.a. Barbie herself. So her mother, Ruth Handler, who in the movie, Ruth Handler's Ghost, is played by Rhea Perlman. You know, thank God I needed a redemption arc for her after her role in Matilda. I've always been kind of scared of her. But the real Barbara Handler, the daughter of the creator of Barbie, is the woman on the bench. And it's just such a special moment where she tells her she's beautiful. And even though Barbie lives in a world where nobody ages, her having that moment I think is really important. And it's like kind of crazy because we're currently in this TikTok era where everyone is doing this filter where they look older and talking badly about their appearance and their eye bags and wrinkles. And it's just like a really dark trend to me that I hate so much where everyone's shitting on their older selves. And I just thought this was like maybe an important reminder that a person with no internalized messaging about aging looked at this woman next to her and, and just from the pureness of her own heart thought she was beautiful because she is. In the middle there, we we meet Mattel CEO, played by Will Ferrell, and they talk about you know empowering women and blah, blah, blah. But it's like a boardroom of all goofy men. And they, when they realize Barbie's gotten out into the real world, it could have catastrophic effects. So they go on this adventure to basically arrest and find Barbie or put her back in a box. But Barbie, at the last minute, like decides not to. She then goes to see the ghost of Ruth Handler, who started Barbie, which is a really touching scene. Anyway, so Barbie has that experience, whereas Ken is like in a Barbie land, is Barbie's utopia. The real world is Ken's. I mean, he's just seeing men in charge in suits. He discovers horses. There are Hummer SUVs. He's living for the toxic masculinity. He's just having this great experience. And when they return to Barbie land, um, Barbie's still struggling. And Ken becomes this like incel character. What's funny about Ken is like, so he learns about patriarchy and because he's a fashion doll, like he kind of just adopts, he's kind of ridiculous. So he's not that, threatening but you know he puts on a lightning bandana to signify his change he starts wearing like S- sylvester stallone-esque fur coats he's obsessed with horses he turns the barbie dream house into his mojo dojo casa house he like is kind of cosplaying a toxic masculine guy so in the other world can i mean ken's job is just beach he's wholly dependent on barbie he only has a good day if he she looks at him like he just doesn't have his own identity, but he learns about patriarchy and, like, men running everything. He comes back to Barbie land and persuades the other Kens to completely kind of brainwash and subjugate the Barbies. They become these, like, agreeable girlfriends and housewives and maids, and they listen to them play guitar at them then <laughs> sing Matchbox 20. Uh, they coerce them into doing things that I the unimaginable things I never want to spend my time doing, like watching The Godfather and having it over explained to them. Meanwhile, Barbie tries to first convince Ken to and the Barbies to return to how things were, but isn't successful. And she kind of she actually has a moment of like kind of basic white girl fragility that I think was interesting where she's just overwhelmed and she's like, this isn't my job. Someone else do it. I think that was an interesting facet to show of Barbie. Like, she was very much a flawed character. And it's kind of that reaction of being like, I know this is bad and I'm so overwhelmed, but, like, I'm not maybe overly affected by it, so maybe it's somebody else's problem type vibe. I don't know how to explain it, but I, thought, I just thought that was an interesting scene where she's about to give up and be exactly who Sasha, the young girl, thought she was that is doing nothing to meaningfully advance women. And everything just to to keep them exactly in the same place and reinforce these impossible standards. And she snaps out of it with encouragement of Sasha and Gloria, Sasha's mom, played by America Ferreira. And they go to the abandoned toy house with weird Barbie. And they, like, make a plan to regain their power and prevent Ken's from, from altering the Barbie land constitution, which would just make the men superior, I guess. There's some musical scenes. It's it's a whole thing, but the movie really comes together, and you you begin your existential spiral after hearing a, a monologue by America Ferrera, which is yeah, it's like the most important part, which I will talk about in a second. But and like the end, I kind of want to talk about outside of just explaining the plot. But basically the. The Ken's turn against each other and, I don't know, balance is reestablished. The Barbie's regain control. And then it's this crazy thing where, you know, Barbie and Ken, like, have a moment and he doesn't really apologize to her at all. In the the wake of what he's done, even though Barbie's still trying to find her own identity and and is on this process of self-discovery, She's like apologetic and encouraging of Ken to find his own identity outside of her. And it's kind of an interesting scene. And then uh, Barbie didn't realize during the movie, even though I said it, that the woman in the Mattel office was the ghost of Ruth Handler. And they have this really touching scene where they talk about how Barbie's story has no set ending and the importance of her evolution and her history. Uh, kind of being more important than her roots. And Barbie realizes she doesn't want to be, she wants to do the creating. She doesn't want to be the creation. She doesn't want to uh, be the idea. She wants to make the ideas. And she decides to become human and return to the real world. And um, Gloria, her husband, and the girl Sasha take Barbie, who goes by Barbara Handler, to her first gynecologist appointment, which is a hilarious ending for a doll that famously has no vagina. Okay, so I didn't mean to go through the plot in that much detail, but I just wanted to recount it because I was having trouble remembering it. Um, That's not from memory. I was looking at uh, different reviews of it to remember what happened high level. But I think the most meaningful things that I want to now spiral about is like, I want to talk about the monologue and I want to talk about what I think is another parallel of Barbie Land in the real world, not just as a, a device to juxtapose The role of patriarchy um, and make us think about how this looks when it's flipped, but also kind of Barbie land as a metaphor for the open ended, limitless, pure uh, experience of playing make believe with things like Barbie in your girlhood and the slow but sure ways you are taught to be self-conscious you were taught to self-regulate you were taught to prioritize being liked over the things you love um and the world kind of infiltrates your make-believe utopia where girls have all these options and can be whatever they want to be only to be reduced to boxes far worse than the ones you played with and the toys you took out of them when you were younger um but first, OK, the monologue, I don't want to I don't want to spoil it. I just told you the whole plot. Um, I can I found like a script of it on line and I don't want to recount the whole thing because like, it's just special and should exist within the movie. But oh God, it was so important. It, it, being in a room of people wearing pink and glitter and hearing them clap after this was just like a really special experience. I'll treasure. I've been buying so much stuff recently to prepare for this baby. It's like slightly overwhelming. And I've started hearing about this company a lot, how people that are having to buy necessities anyways also watch their cash back grow with each purchase with a company called Ibotta. Ibotta gives you cash back on hundreds of grocery items from produce to personal care to pantry goods, which just makes it a little less overwhelming to be buying so much stuff all the time. You either link your loyalty account or upload your receipt after you shop and you get your cash back. It's that easy that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. Other apps give you points that don't amount to much. But the average Ibotta user earns $120 per year, which could cover an entire shopping trip, among other things. And I don't know, I just who doesn't want the free money? It feels it makes shopping feel more productive. They have a lot of friends that use it. And you earn cash back on hundreds of online brands and retailers when you start with Ibotta, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. And right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 for just trying Ibotta. By using the code Be There Five when you register, just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the Free Ibotta app, and use code Be There Five. That's I B O T T A in the Google Play or App Store, and use code Be There Five. People may usually advertise this product because of their high-energy athletic endeavors, but at this point, I need to be hydrated just to like get up and down the stairs, and I love liquid IV. Always have, always will. But now I'm pretty excited because they just came out with their signature product, the Hydration Multiplier, in a sugar free format. And they use a proprietary zero sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. Liquid IV already was the number one powdered hydration brand in America. And now it's available in sugar free with three times the electrolytes of leading sports drinks plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. And best of all, if you're anything like me and don't always feel like waterboarding yourself with a giant jug, Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone, so I feel like I'm killing two birds. And one stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water, again, will hydrate you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. And this isn't like a gimmick. It's the result of extensive R&D to perfect the flavor and efficacy, combining science-backed zero-sugar technology with the brand's commitment to delicious, real flavor. And best of all, they partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect their water and their futures. And to date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Now, sugar-free? Grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code Five at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you use promo code Five at liquidiv.com. I think I mentioned to you guys before, like, some live shows I would, you know, read, like, the abstract poems that, like, turned into eventual book chapters and themes. And one in particular, a listener came up to me, and it was regarding my detailed memories of Limited two, And she mentioned that my memories from that time were likely so vivid because research shows that girls' confidence peaks at age nine and then takes a nosedive, whereas male confidence rises. And it was an interesting turning point for me in kind of understanding the role nostalgia plays in my life and career and how I think part of my obsession is not only that I like to spark joy and use my observational nature to have other people remember who they were and the things they loved that maybe felt diminished at the time. But I think for me personally, as a person who really struggled with their self-esteem, as many do, and who admittedly, like, didn't have, it's not that I had a hard childhood or a tough family life. I I was such a function of my environment. And there were many forces that kind of whittled away at my confidence over the years. And that's part of what I explore in my book, um, how much of a product of our, envir- of our environments we can become and how pop culture, for better or worse, can shape us. And um, I think some of the wistful, whimsy Ways I talk about girlhood is a function of that confidence that listener mentioned, because that was like a really specific time that I felt more defined by my capabilities than expectations, where I just did what I loved because I loved it. And I wasn't really that concerned about being liked. Walking away from this movie, I I really was kind of thinking about Barbie Land as this blank slate of girlhood where... Self consciousness doesn't exist. That that's not something that is inherent so much as it's taught. So you spend your that time just like being, just existing, just dreaming, pretending, make believe. You're you're using your imagination, and everyone's telling you girls can do anything. The world is your oyster, and you set up all these dreams only to move through your adolescence and and kind of realize how many things are out there that work overtime to wear down your confidence, and they do so successfully. And I guess it's no wonder to me that the time when I felt most confident would be so vivid to me. And that's why that data point was quite profound. And I dug into it more. And I can't remember, I'm sorry, if I can't remember, we've talked about this on the podcast. So there's a 2018 book called Confidence Code for Girls. that examines what they call the confidence gap. And the authors, Claire Shipman, Katie Kay, and Jill Ellen Riley, partnered with Y-Pulse to survey more than 1,300 girls from ages 8 to 18 by their parents. And what they found is between the ages of 8 and 14, girls' confidence levels fall by 30%. At 14, when girls are hitting their low, boys' confidence is still 27% higher. But there was one quote that stopped me in my tracks and that really inspired me a lot, honestly, when I was writing my book. It was an interview the authors did with a Stanford psychologist named Carol Dweck, who said, if life were one long grade school, women would be the undisputed rulers of the world. And they examine the factors that contribute to adolescent confidence. And one of these things is that women, young women are encouraged and rewarded for perfectionistic and people-pleasing behavior. So then young women learn to place their self-worth in the boxes they check for other people. And perfectionism inherently has like a level of, of risk aversion. There are implications for being rewarded for perfectionism. So that prevents many young women from kind of the ongoing replenishing confidence you would find in stepping out of your comfort zone, stepping outside the box, trying something new, taking a risk, which are important when you're young, to actually start to produce your own self-esteem rather than have to get it from other places. So it's almost this issue of becoming overly reliant on outside validation because young women more so than young men are rewarded For being good, for people pleasing behaviors, for being cooperative. And I think it's so interesting that it's like at the age where you kind of stop playing with Barbies, that's when these outside forces kind of can erode your confidence or your reward system kind of changes. And all of that playfulness and dreaming and and imagination that's a product of what you don't know kind of dwindles as you feel more and more limited to sources of outside validation to make you feel valuable. And it just becomes a lot less about you and how you see the world and about everyone who's looking at you. And I just think that it was, I don't know, it was a moment for me in understanding, like, why like nostalgia, maybe why this movie hit so hard. I do think in that Barbie Land type phase where we're not impacted by these forces yet, you feel more defined by possibility by your capabilities than by expectations. And it is interesting to think of the the shift from these outside forces existing, but not really affecting you yet. And then as you become a young woman and move through adolescence, the way, you know, your purpose can feel very eroded to the male gaze toward to, to institutional metrics of validation, like grades, um, to eventually move on and get older, reducing myself over the years to just simply trying to be hot and fun to get men to like me to you know hustle and grind in the workplace to not be liked but be taken seriously which is its own form of a shift as you move through life where you realize that certain phases you're just trying to be accepted then you're trying to be hot then you're trying to be desired then you're trying to be taken seriously that it's like all the while what do I desire why am i not taking myself seriously why don't i believe that i'm beautiful And then you ultimately enter this pipeline to where you're told the ultimate fulfillment is as wife and mom, which is, again, what you are to other people. And you look back on your girlhood and you're like, damn. I was just allowed to exist. I belong to myself. And it's interesting thinking of being Barbie playing age before that confidence gap occurs. And you're not overthinking it. And you didn't even know that Barbie represented this kind of lightning rod. Of how people thought she needed to represent every woman, and how people, the discourse about her being problematic or not, or her body proportions. And well, yeah, she is responsible for impossible beauty standards. There's also part of her that's really productive in how she represented options for young women. And it can be both. But at that point where you're not really aware of all of the harshness and double standards that you'll eventually grow to deal with, the very thing you're playing with embodies them. And it's just kind of interesting and makes me like empathize and more drawn to Barbie, I think, realizing that. And then when America Ferreira goes into her monologue and is, you know, talks about it, like somehow we're always just doing it wrong. We're, we're expected to be thin, but not too thin. You can't say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but you also have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk t- about your kids all the damn time. She goes on and on and on to talk about all the all of these ways that we feel the double standards. We know the system is rigged, but we're supposed to be grateful. We're supposed to put a smile on our face and be so filled with gratitude for the table scraps we're left with. Uh, we, we endure this intense self regulation not just by men, but by women alike, because we're all a part of this system. And it's exhausting tying ourselves into knots so people will like us. And she ends the monologue with saying, if all of that is also true for a doll just representing a woman, then I don't even know. And that's what I mean by the retreat that's found within the monologue that's so powerful. She delivers it a little insecurely. She ends it without resolve. She almost is backtracking. And, and that's, that's so relatable. E- even in our most uh, poignant moment moments we, we are exhibiting the very behaviors we're speaking out against because that's how deep the conditioning is that we shouldn't be taking up space that we shouldn't be complaining that we should just be grateful and I just think the point is that Barbie and all women unfortunately most of us with less ample arches live their lives tiptoeing trying to embody the standard set for us that we never even asked for. And the bar is set so high, it leaves most people unable to reach these standards, which leaves us envious or hateful toward the people who do reach those standards because they're maintaining them. All the while, what did they do? They strove for and succeeded at the thing they were told to do, just like we tried, but we fell short. And now we're holding it against them, but not the people that set the standards. And if you meet and uphold the impossible beauty and body standards, you're the enemy. If you can't meet them and reject them, you're judged just as well. And it is impossible to be a woman. To quote my friend Nora McInerney, there is no good way to be a woman. It is exhausting most days to feel like there is no right way to be a woman. But for a moment, this movie made me feel like the best part of that is there's no wrong way to be a woman. Ultimately, better than being the type of woman that fits into a box as idyllic as Barbie Land looks, it's not reality. And the best thing you can allow yourself to be is just human. Because if if you keep relying on the outside validation and the perfectionism and the metrics that other people set for your self-worth, if you let the double standards drive you crazy, if you get further and further from a place of what you want and who you are and how you look at the world and stay in that place of always obsessing over how people perceive you, it's a self-sabotaging venture Because you literally can't please everyone. Again, if a doll, an invention that theoretically could be invented to be perfect is being held to these impossible standards that women are held to just because she represents a woman, even though she has no vagina, no private parts. I mean, like, say it with me. We never stood a chance. So, yeah, it's really gratifying to put on something pink or glittery, to wear a a platform shoe, to a suburban regal cinema, to go with our girlfriends and get lost in this bubblegum pink universe where we can laugh and cry and celebrate something we once loved but maybe don't care as much about anymore, but realize we actually held on to more of that part of ourselves than we maybe thought. Even if the movie didn't say anything brand new or entirely revelatory, depending on how you perceive it, even though it didn't solve feminism, for a moment it might allow for some self-acceptance and reflection and celebration of the parts of you that you pushed down or diminished over the years in order to be taken seriously and not be too young and girlish. And I forget, I've watched so many cast interviews, but somebody made such an interesting point that I brought up earlier. and, And I have been thinking about this a lot, how these things that are so sacred to us, our dolls, our American girl dolls, whatever, our toys, our movies, our popular culture, like the, the ways we we string together our days and our youth, the things that bring us joy, the hobbies and interests we develop, the, the vehicles we use to make believe and use our imagination. Like, we have to drop those things when we move through puberty, when we become teenagers, when we become adults. All the things young girls play with, they're made to feel are too childish and grounds for not being taken seriously if they still like so one day we have to completely abandon all the things we love in order to feign some sense of maturity the world demands of us. But young boys, if we're oversimplifying gender roles, that like cars and trucks and sports and video games, they still participate in those categories well into their teenagers, well into their adult years. I don't feel like there's this uh, requirement for young men to stop liking what they like to be taken seriously. I just, I guess I don't know which day I, you know, threw the dream house away and uh, was told or decided that if I want to be taken seriously as a young woman, I can't participate in these girly, unserious things anymore. And so part of my hypothesis about why I was so endeared by this movie is that I think I didn't experience much closure with Barbie. I didn't she was kind of this old friend and then one day I never played with her again I think you know it was also on a personal note kind of emotional for me because the conversation about women like always having to be extraordinary um and always having to like be palatable and please people and this that and the other it's like it kind of takes on a whole new life uh during pregnancy. And as I've told you guys, like I've the body dysmorphia and body image issues I've been feeling are a surprise to me because I just assume that when I got here, I'd be consumed with creating life and just being healthy and the baby being healthy and yada, yada, yada. And yes, I care about all those things. But when you're conditioned to and rewarded, the more you look like this doll, like fantasy of a woman, when you know, if all else fails in life, you can teach yourself how to be pretty. You can put on makeup, you can dress the part, you can be put together. It's weird when your body takes over and you don't really have a choice but to physically appear a certain way, when you gain weight, when your body changes shape, when you have no energy, when you, Maria Sharapova grunt with every micro-movement your body makes in public or private, when you don't have cute clothes that fit when you have anxiety three days in advance of just knowing you're going to have to blow dry your hair. Uh, I am a swollen, unrecognizable version of myself. And I'm joking about being a midge. But the reality is, it it it, it is truly dark to me. It, it How what I'm asking myself throughout this process is, why can't I make my misery more beautiful? How can I make my agony more comfortable for people around me? I feel guilty and ashamed for not being able to better mask my own pain and discomfort. I am actively jealous of pregnant women who are carrying cuter than me. <laughs> like, it's so fucked up to say, but like, my point is, you think you've evolved and then you get to circumstances that are more beyond your control than you're used to. And you can't rely on the ways you used to modify things to be able to move through the world a little more easily. And you feel this sense of shame and self-loathing for something you can't even control. I'm so mad at myself for not liking this more. I'm so mad at myself for, you know, even doing things like this where I complain about it publicly. And all the while, you're just like, damn, we go through so much. Um, and I love that America Ferrera at one point, to her part of the monologue was like, it's okay if you just want to be a mom. It's okay if you want a career. Like, it's a, all of it's okay. It, it's, I was so scared about what being a mom, like, meant. And I've experienced a lot of, like, weird backlash and mean people on the internet. I, I, I got the cruelest message, re- like, last week. I get them all the time. But this person was like, I can't wait to see you ruin your life by choosing to have kids and whatever like basic name you think is really original you give your child and like good luck when this blows up in your face like the the anger people feel toward me exploring wanting children or not then deciding that i wanted them or getting more in touch with the side of me that wanted them um has been an interesting backlash that is not greater than the support of course but it still stings and, and it just to me, like that would be a thing that nobody would ever say something about. You know, you would just assume you'd be supported. Um, but still, you can't make people happy. You really are damned if you do, damned if you don't. And on some days, that's that's met with peace because you can't win. And on others, it's so damn defeating, and it becomes hard to exist. And the the microscope I've put, I'm putting myself under in terms of how I handle and talk about this path is kind of a weird thing in and of itself because. As the movie touched on, like, you don't want to talk too much about your kids. You don't want to make them your whole identity. I judged people in this position before when I didn't understand it. And we're just like under so much scrutiny, no matter what our choices are. Um, And seeing how people respond to you in this state is fascinating. Because pregnant or not, you realize your body is an object for for the consuming. Whether you're more of an object as your regular self. You're kind of this vessel for repopulation when you're pregnant. and People don't see you as a person. They just see you as a pregnant woman. They talk about your belly and your size. And when you're doing that's definitely a boy. And you're carrying high and you're about to pop. And I guess it's just so crazy to learn that in my most arguably desirable state and now in my least, the thing they have in common is your body is to always be objectified and commented on. Without your consent, and whether it's in the context of feeling like an object or a vessel it's a weird experience either way, and yeah, even though I love the Barbie movie and what called it a near perfect film, it satirically does explore how generally unaccom- unaccommodating our society is to pregnant women. hashtag justice for Midge. <laughs> and I bring this up not to overly harp on my own personal si- personal situation, but to highlight why I like this movie is important because that sort of conversation about double standards and putting ourselves in boxes and allowing ourselves to be human, it, it, it will mean something to people in a variety of circumstances, at a variety of ages and life phases, because it's something we deal with all the time just when we think we're past it, just when we think we've risen above it. And this movie meant something to me, to this version of me now, that it wouldn't have last year. And I'm grateful that something like this exists where you can feel seen and you can feel like you're not the only one that feels torn between wanting to be allowed to exist and also deep down wishing you could uphold the doll-like standards you grew up believing were attainable. And you spent many years of your life resenting. Uh, And you still spend a lot of your time envying other people who embody it. It's confusing. And I think that not feeling one way about something or feeling really clear or evolved makes me feel like I always need to be under construction. But that's kind of the lie is that to be worthy, you need to always be working on yourself. And like, it's okay that a lot of us are hypocrites and deal with our lifelong conditioning and our adult maturity and self-actualization that wants to counteract that conditioning. But it's just simply not that easy. It's a really beautiful thing to that quote to think, you know, mo- as mothers, we stand stills just so our daughters can see how far they've come. Um, like, what a beautiful sentiment of how many of these experiences that we've been through, our mothers went through, their mothers went through and so on and so forth. And with every, with passing time with each generation, you just hope things get a, a little bit better and you hope to instill less of those internalized things and the people you bring into this world. And what connects us is that innocence and wonder of girlhood when our options are open, when things feel limitless. And even though life ultimately whittles away at our confidence and we realize all the things we're limited to only to be gaslit by self help gurus that then tell us our failures are a product of our limiting beliefs and therefore our fault. I just at the end felt like I was able to breathe and be like, yeah, this is complicated and not getting resolved soon, but we're all human. We all deal with the same shit. We all have to celebrate pink, girly, glittery goodness. And it was really freeing to be able to laugh at the Ken's expense for a minute. I felt emotional at the idea of not being the creation, but the one creating, like the one participating in life and all of its messiness instead of being the object that's a perfect outcome. The the sentiment of, you know, Barbara being like, I created you so you won't have an ending. Uh, just <laughs> was so good to you guys. I guess what I was saying. The, the point is, for me, I took it at face value for its very creative, palatable, funny yet poignant patriarchal commentary. But I also thought the transition from Barbie land to the real world was a parallel for, you know, growing up, if you're lucky, you're hopeful of what the real world has in store for you. And you genuinely believe you can be who you want. And your dreams can come true only for it to slowly but surely compromise your your self-worth when you realize how much of your value can be steeped in systems beyond your control and as a function of others' opinions. And in many cases, it's, you're not overthinking it and everything's fine. But in more vulnerable moments you almost feel lied to about what it would be like. Um, and it's no wonder, like, the data I shared with the confidence gap, like, the metaphor of moving from Barbie land to the real world, that naivete to reality, aka moving through your adolescence from a child to an adult, to totally oversimplify it, like, females experience what Barbie did, and their confidence declines, and males experience what Ken did in maintaining or exceeding it. That's because in many ways they're set up for success and were endlessly scrutinized. And I guess the movie meant something to my inner child in that sense. Um, but my whole spiel about the midge of it all is like it's still equally relevant to me today as an adult, where no matter how far I've come, each new experience kind of greets me with a level of vulnerability that makes me fall for these lies we're told all over again. And even though I'm experiencing this thing unique to women it's theoretically empowering I mean I'm 3D printing a human like intellectually, spiritually, conceptually, I get it it's important I th- I should rise above all of this, but still yet I am still s- somehow so self-conscious of how I talk about it, how I look, how I act, what you think of me talking about it, if I'm going to be reduced to just that role and I just feel so damn badly for not always leading with first and foremost gratitude, like she said in the monologue. But then today I sat inside alone all day because my husband was at a wedding that I wasn't allowed to travel to. He was in it, so he needed to go and I wanted him to go. But it was a little too far away for me to go and I desperately wanted to be there. And there was a block party on my street and a food truck right outside that I wanted to go to so bad. But I, what I do, I hid inside all day simply because I cannot deal with another comment about how I'm about to pop and it's any day now because it's not. I have several weeks to go. And if you remind me of it, I may cry. And just because I'm having a hard time right now, and all the while, I just feel badly that my suffering isn't more beautiful. And I, I think it's the movie meant something to me, because even when we're doing the most and experiencing difficult things, this, it's still this self-surveillance is hard to shake. That's how deeply it runs. And I know it's absurd, but I, I felt, I guess watching it, I felt a little less crazy and a little less embarrassed for being affected so deeply by what people think of me, for having to face my own vanity, even though I wish I could rise above it, um, for my like confusion and obsession with my own identity at every phase of life. And it just was a gift to, you know, if only for a moment, be in a room of people who all understand that experience, but just to have a, a, a break to offset it by wearing pink and eating popcorn out of plastic convertibles and spending time with friends and laughing and crying about a doll that reminds us of that once unselfconscious version of ourselves. It felt like our own version of Meet Me Behind the Mall, you know? (laughs) I don't even think we need to analyze why. I think it can be enough to just enjoy something. It it was something I needed this week and I can't wait to see it again and it was just nice to enjoy a piece of art. Uh and and witness it doing what the best art does. It entertains you and it makes you think. And it makes you want to talk about it for 90 minutes afterward even if it's only to yourself. And um I loved it. I hope you guys did too. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of things but I was trying not to like talk for, I don't I don't want to do the thing where I talk for longer than the thing is about the thing. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. I wanted I don't know. I this. I just wanted to get out my feelings because I wanted somebody to talk to about this movie. I hope enough of you have seen it, and I wanted it to be like half of what actually happened in the movie, so we're on the same page. But like half of it, I realized was stream of consciousness, me talking about what it meant to me. But what I think is not correct, nor will it probably match other people's interpretations. I actually do think this is going to mean something different to all of us, and we'll take different things. and I'm curious to hear. But I I really genuinely appreciate you letting me (laughs) indulge in my own interpretation for a moment. It really felt like Midge deserved her. Time to shine. This just a movie just... Didn't... Granted, Midge is problematic in her own right, because she had like the ultimate like, quote-unquote bounce-back body, where she was just a regular Barbie with a bump. You could take off the bump, take out the baby, and then she was still the exact same. But still, I don't know. I just think the scent of the food truck was wafting through my vents all day, and I grew angrier and angrier than... I would be off-putting to the crowd should I walk out my doorstep. <laughs> um, anyway, you guys, be sure to check out some recent fun interviews we've had on the Be There in Five podcast if you're new here. Last week, we talked t- Taylor Swift with um, Nikki Glaser. The week before, we had Emily Henry and had the most fun millennial convo about her wildly successful books like Beach Read and Happy Place. Um. And before that, we had controversial influencer and maybe scammer, Caroline Calloway, for a conversation that I'm not sure I'll ever get over among other things in the back catalog and many more fun things ahead. If you want extra bonus content, me reacting to Speak Now Taylor's version, or Kelly and I recorded a life update this past week on patreon.com slash be there in five. That's where hundreds of bonus episodes are housed. Um, follow me on Instagram at Kate Kennedy. Tag at Kate Kennedy at be there in five. If you like this episode, the most helpful thing you can do for an independent production is to rate and review five stars. Tell a friend. Um, But most importantly, just thank you for being here. Thank you for the privilege of your time. And as always, let me know your thoughts, and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear.